Oh, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning, and it was a delightful drive onto the Cape this morning. That's the Lord's blessing upon our time together, shall we? Father, we want to thank you for your grace. And Lord, we thank you for the wonderful gift of eternal life that you have given to all those who know you as Lord and Savior. And Lord, as we consider the the word of God this morning, as we consider the, the triumphal entry of the great King into Jerusalem, help us to remember, Lord, that you did this for us. You did it for your glory and to display your glory to us and to call us into fellowship with you, the living God. We ask your blessing now upon our time together and upon your word. May feed us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I'm reading from the New King James from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he had come into into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus! the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And although he had told the disciples exactly what was going to happen there, including his rejection and his death and his resurrection, they just simply didn't understand him. Influenced by their own narrow view of the Old Testament prophecies and by their own ambition, They expected him to establish a kingdom and that they were going to play a leading part in it. That Jesus would enter Jerusalem to the acclaim of the multitudes would have confirmed their assumptions. Now Jesus would inaugurate a new kingdom and they would play a leading role in it but not quite as they had imagined. Now each of the four Gospels contains an account of this important event. But each of the writers writes from a somewhat different perspective. Some stress one thing and some stress another. And so, for example, in Matthew's account, it appears that on arriving at the outskirts of Jerusalem, Jesus sent two disciples over to the next village 
where they acquired uh, this uh, colt and brought it back to him and sat him on it and then he entered the city uh, in triumph. Going into the city, he went uh, into the temple. They threw out the money changers and healed those who were sick and he had a confrontation with the Pharisees. All that is recorded in Matthew in the same chapter, verses 12 through 17. But considering the length of the journey from Jericho to Jerusalem, 17 miles, and an elevation of 4,000 feet, and the lateness of the hour that it would have been when he arrived, there was simply not enough time to do all those things in one day. In Mark's account, we read that after the triumphal entry, he went to the temple, and because of the lateness of the hour, it says, he looked around, went back to Bethany, where he spent the night. And the cleansing of the temple and the other things then happened later. On the other hand, John's Gospel informs us in some detail that upon arrival at the outskirts of Jerusalem, which was on a Friday evening, he went to the house of Lazarus and spent the night there. And the whole next day, which would be the Sabbath, he rested there. Uh, During that night, uh, a dinner was given in his honour, and Mary anointed him. Uh, If you remember, Judas was not very happy about that because of the the cost of of the ointment that was used. Jesus, however, said that that was in preparation for his burial. That next day, Sunday, was the first day of the week, and that was the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem in triumph. So a summary of the four gospel yields this kind of a timeline. Jesus left Jericho on Friday morning, arriving in Bethany in the evening, just before the start of the Sabbath. He spent Saturday with Lazarus, was anointed by Mary. On Sunday morning, he rode into the city in triumph, went to the temple, surveyed the scene in the temple, and then returned to Bethany for the night. And so it was not until Monday that he returned, cleansing the temple, healing the sick, and had that confrontation with the Pharisees. Now, if these initial events seem to move a little slowly and take a lot of time, we must remember that it was Passover, and Jerusalem would be absolutely crowded. The normal population of Jerusalem was somewhere between 70 and 80,000. But on Passover, it could swell between a quarter of a million and 300,000. Any movement within the city would have taken a great deal of time. My wife and I had the privilege of going to uh, Israel uh, back in the late 1980s and there was a strike on at the time. And so the old city where all the, the, the Arab population did their shopping was closed for all but three hours. And we were at the Damascus Gate when they opened that gate. And it was just, it was like a, a, a soccer crowd or a football crowd getting out of the, uh, of the stadium. It was this massive crowd. And we couldn't move. We were actually literally carried along. In fact, for a while, my wife and, uh, and my daughter were separated from us. It was pretty scary, just for a few moments. So we can, we can understand that in, in, in those days, it was a very crowded city. Luke's Gospel adds that uh, for the rest of the week, Jesus taught in the temple, 
returning to Bethany each night to spend the time with Lazarus, except on Thursday when he and the disciples uh, celebrated the last supper in the upper room and then went to Gethsemane where he was arrested. Now, no timeline is without difficulty, but that seems to be a fairly logical explanation. So with that said, let's turn to the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry was an event of great importance because it signified a very distinct change in the way that Jesus presented himself to the people. For some time, the disciples and many of those who followed him had urged him to take a much more prominent role. On several occasions, the crowds seemed ready to force him into becoming the king uh, of, uh, of Israel, into some prominent position of national leadership. But he had refused to be forced into such a situation because he knew that God had a plan and that God's plan was perfect and the timetable of God's plan was perfect. And so this was the time, this particular day, when Jesus was going to reveal himself as the Messiah and the King of Israel. And he did it in style. Not in the the style that would be expected of earthly kings, who usually entered cities in a display of, of great splendor and grandeur, but not Jesus, not King Jesus. As we have read, the, the prophecy in Zechariah says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. It was in fulfillment of this specific prophecy that Jesus entered Jerusalem in a way that reveals several aspects about his kingly character. Namely, that first of all, he is a humble king. Second, he is a compassionate king. And third, he is a worthy king. He is a humble king. Now, in this world, humility is often associated with weakness. But there was nothing weak about Jesus. We don't know much about his physical attributes. But Isaiah 53 indicates that there was really nothing special about Jesus' appearance. Despite the way he he is depicted in movies as a a kind of a a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Adonis, um, that was not the case. Uh, He was a Jewish man. A Jewish man. He would look like a Jewish man, not like some Greek god. We don't know anything about his physical attributes. Uh, He worked as a carpenter, and so he had to have some muscle probably. But we don't know how tall he was. We don't know how heavy he was. All we know is that he had great spiritual strength. What kind of strength did it take to walk the walk that he was entering upon in that last week? What kind of strength did it take to drink the cup of God's wrath? Massive, infinite strength. But it was veiled in lowliness and veiled in humility. Isaiah tells us that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and did not complain. Now that's strength. 
But in no way did this humility and this apparent weakness lessen his authority. We catch a glimpse of this in a a seemingly inconsequential act of acquiring uh, this animal on which he was to ride. (coughs) He told two disciples to go to Bethphage and find a donkey with his colt. Then without asking permission to bring them to Jesus. The disciples did not question his authority. They did not argue that they might be seen as common thieves if they were walking up and just lifting uh, this donkey and this colt away from their, their owners. If questioned, they were simply to state that the Lord has need of them. The Lord is capitalized in the Greek and in the formal translations to capture the importance of what is meant here. This is not just any Lord like the Lord of the manor. This is the Lord of all, the Lord of the universe. And that's the way that Jesus intended this to be understood. And yet, as the Lord of all, he had need of a borrowed donkey. As he was often in need in a place to lay his head. As he was often in need of something to eat. Zechariah's prophecy identifies him as lowly. In verse 5, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly. And sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Kings usually enter the city in a, a great display of, of splendor and power, perhaps riding in a chariot or on a mighty war horse. <coughs> but Jesus came on the colt of a donkey. So, how did Jesus know about this animal? Something that, well, he'd made prior arrangements with the owners. That's not very convincing, is it? Considering that Jesus was miles away in Jericho. No one knew of the exact time of his arrival. But the reality is much deeper than some preconceived or prearranged meeting. This is a display of the Lord exercising his kingly authority in requisitioning the animal that he himself had revealed to Zechariah centuries earlier that it would be so this little colt consider this was born at just the right time it was tied up in just the right place it was owned by just the right people so it would be available when the word came to them that the Lord had need of him a few days later we see a similar occurrence that is beyond the possibility of coincidence. Would you turn to Mark chapter 14, please? Mark 14, beginning in verse 12. This is a little bit later in the week. This this will be on Thursday. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread when they killed the Passover lamb. His disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? He sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room 
with which I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. And so his disciples went out and came into the city, and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. How did Jesus know about this man? Had he made prior arrangements to have him carrying a pitcher of water at just the right time so the disciples would intercept him? Was it just a good guess? You know, there, there is a false doctrine that's been going around the church for about 15 or so years called open theism. Uh, those who believe in open theism say that God cannot know the future infallibly because the future is something that has not yet happened. They say this, of course, to preserve the freedom of men to make a choice when it comes to their own salvation. But so how did Jesus know about this man? Christ knew because it had been ordained as part of the series of events leading up to the cross. God ordains all events that happen in this world all the time. All the actions of all people, the actions of all creatures, to bring about his perfect will. It's a wonderful passage in Isaiah chapter 46, beginning in verse 9. This is what it says. Actually, it's verse 8. Isaiah 46, 8. Remember this and, sh and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. See, in eternity, God made a plan to redeem a particular people by the sacrifice of his son. And nothing is left to chance, not even the slightest detail. A chosen virgin and her carpenter husband, the place of his birth, a man carrying water, a colt to ride on, a cross to die on, Herod, Pilate, the Jews and the Gentiles, all moving and doing the sovereign will of God to bring all events to that one crucial, critical moment in time when Christ went to the cross for his people. All things work according to the pleasure of of his will. Those who owned the animal were willing to part with it on nothing more than a word from the sovereign Lord. They did not argue, they did not delay, they did not require a security deposit. The Lord had need and they met the need. 
So this begs a question, doesn't it? Are we as willing? Are we as willing as these people to meet the need? Do we recognize his authority over our possessions, over our very life? Would we be willing to part with possessions if we knew that he had a need? Now, I think most Christians would say, yes, of course. I would be absolutely willing if we knew that the Lord had a need. All he would would have to do is ask me. Well, he already has. Matthew 25, just a couple of pages over from where we are. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me, sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Surely I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. You see, the word of the Lord comes to us in many forms. It comes to us in the form of those in need in the face of an orphan, of a family struggling to make ends meet, of an elderly person who needs a visit or some help around the house, or a young mother who needs a few hours break from her children, or in a hundred different ways, the word of the Lord comes to us. Jesus asked two disciples to go and fetch the colt, and they went. Will we go when he sends us, as readily? Will we respond as they did, immediately, willingly? Or will we make excuses? When that need is set before us, and we know it is, because our conscience tells us, will we meet the need? Jesus, of course, tells us to be his witnesses in the place that he has put us. Thousands of people in our communities are a heart away, a heartbeat away from eternal damnation. Who will tell them of the love of God? Who else has Jesus given this task to except us, the church? It's our task. Jesus is Lord of all and works all things out according to his will. But he works them out in and through his people. 
He was going to enter Jerusalem in triumph, and absolutely nothing would prevent that. But he needed to borrow a colt from someone. He had a need. He would hold the Last Supper, but he needed to borrow a room. He would die for the sins of the people, but he would need to borrow a tomb. He just not didn't take what he needed like other kings, just grab it. Instead, he enlisted the help of those who loved him and obeyed him as their true and rightful king. Alexander McLaren rightly called him the pauper king. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we might become rich. Our king, my friends, is great. He is Lord of all. He is the king of the universe. But he is also humble. He is Lord of all, but put himself in a position of needing help from us. We are drawn, aren't we, to his own words. Beautiful words in Matthew chapter 11. You know them very well. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Who would not want to serve such a king who served us infinitely so? He's also a compassionate king. This aspect is not readily seen in the text in Matthew, but we cannot overlook what the other Gospels say about the triumphal entry. So I would call your attention to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. And beginning in verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the day of your visitation. What a contrast we see here. Jesus had had crested the Mount of Olives, and he was on his way down uh, to the eastern gate, and the, the gate that he would enter uh, going into Jerusalem. The city spread out before him, the sun reflecting on the gold and, and the silver and the alabaster of the temple. He is surrounded by joyful people spreading palm branches and even taking their, their coats off and laying them in his way. Children are singing. They welcome him as their king. Does his heart leap with joy? He weeps. He weeps. He weeps because he knows what will happen. He knows that the welcoming crowds who are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will very soon be saying, crucify him. (coughs) Away with him. 
He knows the glorious city will soon be in total ruins with tens of thousands of dead in its smouldering remains. He knows that the end is near. William Henderson said this, In Jesus on that day, Israel recognized its Messiah. No doubt in that huge crowd, some were truly converted and by God's grace had accepted Jesus as their Lord and Saviour in the true biblical sense. But by and large, what Israel wanted was its own kind of Messiah, an earthly deliverer. And when they did not get that, they rejected him and called for his death. Even though he knew what would happen, there is no hint of animosity in Jesus. Only a deep sadness and compassion for them. The scripture which they were reciting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and many others, did not just speak of a saviour who would deliver Israel from human oppression, but one who would deliver them from sin, which separated them from God. They were looking for peace on earth. Jesus offered them peace with God. Oh, what a difference. And that's what the people of this world want now, isn't it? Peace on earth. And they think that that will solve all their problems. But their problem isn't that that the, the nations are at war with each other. The problem is that God is at war with them. If you are unsaved, if you are unconverted, God is your enemy. And my friends, he's formidable. He's formidable. They wanted a loving and compassionate Jesus. That's what people want today. They want a loving and a compassionate Jesus. But you know what they don't want? They don't want a holy Jesus. They don't want someone who requires holiness from them. They want a Jesus who will wink at their ongoing disobedience and will not censure them. They want to be associated with Jesus and receive his benefits. They want a Jesus who does not make demands on them, however. They want a tolerant Jesus. A lot of churches are very proud of calling themselves tolerant churches. And they display rainbow banners and they say all who are welcome. We are an open and welcoming community. But the one thing that they don't want is Jesus who is holy and says, no, that is wrong. That is sin. You cannot cannot have companionship with evil and fellowship with Christ. Such a Jesus does not exist. He is a holy Jesus. So like the majority of those who welcomed him into Jerusalem and then turned against him, modern day pretenders will do the same. There is a very frightening aspect to the Lord's words which should not be lost upon us here in Luke's commentary. It's simply this. When you're faced with the truth and you know it and you reject it, there will come a time when that truth is no longer available to you. 
Listen to what he says. If you had only known the things that make for peace, and what he's talking about, of course, is peace with God, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Once the truth is hidden, there can be only one and only one outcome, and that is destruction. Destruction because of a failure to recognize the one who is a saviour. And that's a crucial question for us. Do we recognize him as a saviour, as Lord? As Jesus came to Israel, he comes to us. He comes to you in the Bible, that is if you read it. He comes to you in the Sunday school lesson, that is if you are here to hear it. He comes to you in the sermon, that is if you pay attention to it. He comes to you in the still, small voice of conscience, that is if you do not silence him with the noise of self-determination. How many times has he come to you and you have turned him away? How many times will he yet come before he never comes again? Your king is coming. Do not let him pass by. Do not like be, be like the crowd which gave only lip service. There are so many in our churches today give lip service. He is willing to save all who will come to him by faith. For he is a compassionate king. He's also a worthy king. Although the majority of those who praised him did so for the wrong motives, yet the truth was proclaimed according to the scriptures. God's word will never be silenced. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. Paul, uh, when he was writing to the Philippians, said, I preach Christ out of sincerity. There are some over there who are preaching him for other reasons. They're preaching him to get at me. They don't like me. And so they're preaching him in opposition to me. But what does Paul say? Regardless of whether the gospel is preached out of pure or wrong motives, praise the Lord because the gospel is preached. The truth is preached. And the truth will be. You see, it was prophesied that Jesus would be proclaimed as Lord by the multitudes. And nothing could prevent it. There's a record in the Old Testament of the prophet Balaam. Remember him? He was hired to curse Israel. And he got ready to curse them. And what came out of his mouth? Blessings instead. And of course, the king that hired him was very angry. He said, I paid you to curse them. Why don't you curse them? And Balaam, being at least partially wise, said, well, I can only say what God says. God puts the words in my mouth. I have no option here. Now, Balaam went the wrong way later. He blessed them because the sovereign Lord of the universe has said that he will bless his people. In Proverbs chapter 16, it says this, 16.1, The preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The preparations of the heart belong to man. So Balaam went there with the intention 
of cursing them. But he couldn't. Because Sovereign Lord had determined that he would not. Many in that crowd that praised Jesus were caught up just in sheer enthusiasm, emotionalism, caught up in the moment. Many of them had purely selfish motives. But the eternal truth was proclaimed. Jesus is Lord and Christ. Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest. And millions of people attending church today, celebrating Palm Sunday, singing hymns of praise that speak about Jesus as Lord and Saviour, and many of them will do so in complete ignorance because they are strangers to saving faith. Yet from their mouths he will be honoured and glorified for he is worthy. We're told in the book of Philippians that there will come a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even those who are in hell will bend the knee and say the words because God has ordained that they will and they will. Scripture tells us that the universe will be filled with praise. There is something else. The dramatic outpouring of praise from believers and unbelievers alike at the triumphal entry foreshadows a day in the future when Jesus will return a second time to be recognized by all. Because the scripture tells us that his coming will be seen by all. Every eye will see him. On that great and terrible day, all will know who Jesus Christ is. All will acknowledge him. Some in fear, others with joy. What will we do on that day? Should we be alive when that day comes? Perhaps a more important question is, What will you do now? For we do not know when the Lord will return. We know that he will. The scripture promises, and the scriptures are true, it will occur. What we do now determines what we will do then. As Ossie Sproul said, right now counts forever. Right now counts forever. When the Pharisees heard the crowd singing praise to Jesus, they said, tell them to stop. And I loved his response. He said, if they stop, the stones will sing out in praise. And, you know, I, I, I believe that absolutely would have happened. I don't think Jesus was kidding. The stones would have sung out in praise. And if that is the case, my friends, Surely, it is an incentive for the Lord's people to praise him, for he is a worthy king. Today, we remember the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. But we must also remember that he went there for the purpose of dying for our sins. Jesus is Lord and Savior. He is humble. He is compassionate. 
he is worthy. And we, by the grace of God, are his people. So how are we to respond? Well, certainly, we are to give praise, aren't we? But I think there are three specific ways we should respond. And the first is like the disciples who went to get the cult. We must be ready when he sends us, even though it may be scary. When the Lord called me to the ministry, I was in the business world at the time, but the call came, and my wife and I were absolutely convinced that it was a call. The church confirmed it. But we did not know what was going to happen. All I knew is that we, I had to quit my job and go to seminary. I knew that much. Didn't know much else. <clears throat> not long ago, and you may have may be familiar with this, uh, Jeremy Rennie and Seth Rogers uh, of South Shore Baptist Church were quite settled in their ministries. Jerry was, uh, Jeremy was a senior pastor of South Shore Baptist Church and Seth Rogers was an associate pastor. Less than two years ago. Guess where they are now? Well, Jeremy is now a pastor in Dubai and Seth and his wife left for a mission in Egypt just a few weeks ago. They had no clue a couple of years ago that God would do this in their lives. Absolutely no clue. God called and they went. There are some things that God has got planned in our lives that we do not know, nor do we understand them. And it's not unusual for Christians to wonder, I wonder what God's will is for, for my life. It's a legitimate question. I mean, I've asked it, I'm sure you've asked it. Lord, what do you want me to do? And we kind of hope that we're going to get this message from heaven uh, we're going to get a letter in the mail or we're going to get something that's going to appear on our computer screen that says, this is what you're going to do. That's not going to happen, of course, is it? But we know that God has got a plan. And what are we to do? Because we don't know what the plan is. Well, we trust him. We trust him. But before we worry too much about the future, about what we do not know, we need to do what the Bible has already made perfectly clear for us to do. We are told, for example, to pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. That seems to me a pretty important task. Pursue holiness. Yeah, but I want to know what's going to happen six months down the road. I, know, I want to know if I'm going to get transferred in my job. I'm, I don't know if I'm going to have a, uh, a child or, or, or grandchildren. I don't know about that, and neither do you. But in the meantime, pursue holiness. Amen. Is that enough? Will that keep us busy, do you think? Yes. Pursue holiness. As we do what we know to be God's will, we can be confident that in due time, he will reveal those things to us that we do not yet know. All we know is that God holds the future and he holds it firm. And if you know him as Lord and Saviour, it is a glorious future. Oh yes, there'll be some bumps along the way. Uh, there may be some really difficult times along the way. But you know where you're going, right? If you know Christ. You know. Amen. And as we begin to walk in obedience to that which we do know is the will of God, 
We know that the way before us will open up in unexpected ways. I never expected to be a Baptist pastor. I've told my wife many times and other people, when I came to this country, which is 50 years ago, I was was a pagan. I was a pagan, a liar, a thief, a very self-centered man. And if someone would have told me when I was getting on that Pan American 707 in London that one day you will be a Baptist pastor, I would have said, take my luggage off, I'm not going. I would not have done something like that. It was crazy. Now, God may have something crazy in your future. I don't know. But he does. And your future is secure in him. And so we need to be like the disciples. Go and get a cult. And so they went. And second, we need to be like the owners of the cult and be ready should Jesus ask to part with our resources when we see a need. And my friends, there are no shortage of needs in the church and in your community. Third, we are to praise and worship our great king, and proclaim his glory to others. Jesus entered Jerusalem to songs of praise. If we know him as Lord and Savior, he has entered our very heart and lives within us for all eternity. And that, my friends, should cause us, like the people in Jerusalem who really did know him, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the King. Hosanna. Father, we pray your blessing upon us today. This small flock which you have gathered here, and you have a future for them. You know them individually, you know them collectively. You know them like I don't know them. You know them better than they know themselves. Lord, my prayer for this church is that you would keep each and every one of them secure, that you would give them the grace to walk day by day, trusting you, knowing that you are the sovereign Lord in control of all things. And though they may go through difficult times in the future, their future is secure in you if they know you as Lord and Savior. And you know those who are and those who are not. So I pray, Lord, that you would move in each one's heart to draw them ever closer to Christ. For those that do know you, Lord, that you would fill them with love and joy and faithfulness. And if there be some here that do not, that you would fill them with the knowledge of the truth, that they are separated from you. And if they remain so, the future is not good, but that they might turn to you Because you say, whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We thank you for that. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your wonderful blessings to us. And we praise you this day, Jesus' name. Amen.